0: Our first reading is from St. Luke's Acts of the Apostles. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and on a cloud, and a cloud took him out of their sight. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound. And they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Perithians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Figria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. And visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes Cretans and Arabians we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God the word of the Lord
1: so if we count the days beginning at Easter Sunday today marks the 50th day which is why today in the church calendar we commemorate the initial coming of the Holy Spirit upon believers 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, and just 10 days after his ascension into heaven. And this coming of the Holy Spirit, of course, occurred on the Jewish feast of Pentecost, which is described for us in, in chapter 2 of Acts in our first lesson today. So it's only natural that our focus today would be on the Holy Spirit, what, I'd hope, what I hope to address in particular is the enormous amount of confusion or disagreement about the Holy Spirit that exists among believers today. And I hope to do this with the aim of bringing us to a place of better understanding and greater unity. Now, as far as I can tell, the primary root of most contemporary confusion about the Holy Spirit can be traced to the variety of responses to the Pentecostal and charismatic movements, which emerged in the church a little more than a century ago, at least the modern versions of them. Just to give you a little background, in the late 19th century, a movement emerged out of the Methodist tradition known as the Holiness Movement. And this holiness movement was distinguished by its emphasis on what has come to be called charismaticism, or the supernatural spiritual gifts, such as healing and miracles and the gift of tongues. These are gifts described in the New Testament. But charismaticism began to gain in popularity and in exposure After 1906, when a man named William Seymour of the holiness tradition held a revival at Azusa Street in Los Angeles where participants experienced a variety of supernatural manifestations of God. And this revival marked the beginning of what has now come to be known as the Pentecostal movement. But in the 1960s and 1970s, This form of Charismaticism began to extend beyond Pentecostal traditions to gain traction in pockets of even the Roman Catholic Church, as well as the Anglican Church, including both the Episcopal Church and the Church of England. And the Charismatic influence remains in Anglicanism to this day. In fact, some of you may know that I myself came into Anglicanism through a Charismatic Episcopal Church in Southern California. And I have had some of the experiences that are considered the ha- some of the hallmarks of the charismatic movement. But as a consequence of this history, the present-day reality within Anglicanism, and even here within our particular parish, is that there will be some who have had supernatural experiences, such as speaking in tongues or miraculous healing, which they have identified as the work of the Holy Spirit. And then there will be others who've never experienced anything like this and who aren't quite sure what to make of people who have. So one common area of confusion may be a difficulty in understanding the faith experience of those on the opposite side of whatever side of the fence we're on there. But an even greater level of confusion resulting from the emergence of charismaticism is how to properly understand what the Bible reveals about when a believer receives the Holy Spirit and the relationship between the Holy Spirit and baptism. See, prior to the 20th century Pentecostal movement, the church's traditional teaching on this question had basically gone unchallenged which was that everyone who trusts in Jesus for forgiveness and is baptized, that is, everyone who enters into a spiritual relationship with the risen Lord and submits to baptism in the name of the Trinity, all of them can be assured that they have received the Holy Spirit. That's the church's traditional teaching. Now, this doesn't mean that a person who's entered into a relationship with Jesus but hasn't yet been baptized doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Rather, that for one to be assured that they have the Holy Spirit The Orthodox teaching has required those two elements, faith and baptism, basically. However, in contrast to this, in the Pentecostal movement and in much of Charismaticism, the Christian journey instead tends to be presented as including two distinct milestones. First, the forgiveness of sins. And second, being, quote, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the understanding is commonly that each of these events is marked by their own separate baptisms. It's typically taught that one first receives the baptism of repentance with water and is thereby forgiven of their sins and adopted into the family of God. But that after that, a second baptism of the Holy Spirit should be sought from the Lord, where one will either receive the Holy Spirit for the first time or more fully receive the Holy Spirit than they already have. And I should add that this doctrine of a second baptism of the Holy the baptism of the Holy Spirit is typically taught, it's typically taught with this, this doctrine that the evidence for this second baptism, the evidence that's been achieved is the gift in particular of speaking in tongues. Well, the problem with the discrepancy between these two teachings, the traditional doctrine that ties the full reception of the Holy Spirit to one single baptism. And the Pentecostal teaching that says there are two baptisms, the problem is, is that both doctrines cannot be true. They're mutually exclusive. Either one has to be true or the other has to be true. Either there is one baptism or there are two. Either a person can be assured of having fully received the Holy Spirit at the time of water baptism or there is a second level of faith that needs to be achieved. One or the other. Both can't be true. So today my aim is to reduce some of the confusion surrounding all of this by exploring how each of these positions line up with the witness of Scripture in hopes of bringing greater clarity as to whether believers should anticipate a second baptism or not. However, I should disclaimer that for any of us who believe we've had supernatural experiences, or possess supernatural gifts of the Spirit, I want you to understand that I will not be seeking to either confirm or deny those experiences, right? So you can put that aside. Instead, I'm hoping to equip us to be sure that we are employing biblical categories to make sense of such experiences, whether there are experiences or somebody else's. But if we earnestly desire the truth about these matters, I must also emphasize before proceeding that it, the importance of us seeking to determine what truths the Bible actually intends to communicate about these matters and to be careful not to read our own perspective into verses of Scripture where it's not actually supported by the surrounding context. So to help me do this, I'll be employing the help of Frederick Bruner, who in his work on the Holy Spirit, sought to determine just that. What does the Bible actually say about the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and the relationship of the Holy Spirit to baptism? So to do this, we'll be looking at some of the lectionary passages appointed for today, and there are also a few more passages in the box on your bulletin insert that I may make reference to. But where I want to begin is the primary passage for Pentecost, which describes the occasion when the Holy Spirit first came upon believers. So our reading from the book of Acts. You'll notice I began the passage by adding a little context with a portion that we read from last week from chapter 1. I like context. There, in chapter 1, Luke introduces the book of Acts by explaining that it's going to be a sequel to his gospel, the gospel of Luke. But then in verse 4, Luke picks the story back up. And he picks it up at the point when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. But first, before that happens, Jesus instructs his apostles to remain in Jerusalem and to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Then in verse 8, Jesus re-emphasizes this promise, saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then he commissions them. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's only after saying these things that Jesus is lifted up and taken out of their sight. So here at this point, the apostles have been left in some limbo, but only for about ten days. As the reading then takes us forward to the beginning of chapter 2 when the Jewish feast of Pentecost has arrived and Jesus' apostles are gathered together in one place. Verse 2 of chapter 2 says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as the fire appeared on them, appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So to recap that, when the Holy Spirit first comes upon the apostles, the Holy Spirit's accompanied by a loud sound, like a mighty wind, coming from heaven as well as flames of fire alighting upon each one of the disciples, or the apostles' disciples, same thing. But in addition to these audible and visual signs, the apostles are also given the miraculous ability to speak in the tongues of other nations that existed in the first century, such as Parthians and Medes in the language of Cretans and Arabians and so on. And this miracle turns out to be quite timely and useful. Because there just so happens to be people present in Jerusalem from those nations whose native languages are these other tongues, right? And the reason they're there is because every year on the Feast of Pentecost, Jews from all over the known world would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit then enables these apostles to speak to these these Jewish pilgrims in their native languages about the mighty works of God. Well, this certainly gets these pilgrims' attention. Verse 6 says, at first they were bewildered, and then verse 7 says they were amazed and astonished. So having gotten their attention, if we were to read on in chapter 2 beyond our passage, Peter then proceeds to preach to these pilgrims a sermon about Jesus' death and resurrection, which leads to about 3,000 of these pilgrims' To respond by turning in faith to Jesus through repentance and being baptized. In other words, the Holy Spirit's arrival immediately kickstarts the apostles into fulfilling Jesus' commission to be his witnesses to those in Jerusalem and all the ways to the ends of the earth. And this Pentecost event has been viewed by many as a profound reversal of both the dispersion and confusion of languages precipitated by the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11. But for more on that, you'll have to look at last year's sermon. So the proponents of both the one baptism and the two baptism positions, they each employed this Pentecost passage to support their position. The one baptism camp would say that once the Holy Spirit came, this initial time at Pentecost, that after that, everyone who turns to Jesus and is baptized with water will receive the Holy Spirit. But those who argue there's a second baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as a separate thing, they believe this is what's occurring in this Acts 2 passage. You'll note that verse 2-4 says the apostles were, quote, filled with the Holy Spirit, and that they began to speak in other tongues. However, there are some important elements of the baptism of the Holy Spirit doctrine that this text fails to support. First, it's commonly taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that must be sought or asked for. Or in particular, that the ability to speak in tongues should be sought. Since that's supposedly the, the primary evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yet here, the apostles do nothing of the sort. They neither ask for the Holy Spirit or for the ability to speak in tongues. Instead, the language Luke uses is entirely the language of divine gift. Chapter 1, verse 8 In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will come upon them, right? They're passively hanging out. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, will come upon them. In chapter 2, the sounds come from heaven. The divided tongues come and rest upon them. Moreover, we should note that the Holy Spirit comes to every believer gathered there. There aren't some who qualify and others who don't. It's entirely a gift bestowed upon whomever believes in Christ. Okay. But I should next clarify that Luke, the writer of Acts, he also seems to distinguish this miraculous ability the apostles are given in Acts 2 to speak in other languages. He seems to distinguish that from the spiritual gift of tongues, which some believers are described as possessing by the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12.10 on your insert, right, that's the, referring to the spiritual gift of tongues. So what I'm saying is that Luke, he refers to this miraculous event of otherworldly languages differently than he refers to the spiritual gift of tongues elsewhere. In 2.4, he uses the word other. In Greek, it's the word "heteros." he uses that in front of the word tongues to refer to the languages of other nations. But in the two instances where in the book of Acts the spiritual gift of tongues is referred to, this word other is absent. Furthermore, in those two instances of the spiritual gifts of tongues in Acts 10 and 19, those spiritual gift of tongues refer to an ability to speak in a language that's not of this world and we can We can determine that because there are no foreign language speakers that are being engaged with in those contexts of Acts 10 and 19. So given that Acts 2 neither supports the notion of a baptism of the Holy Spirit needing to be sought out, or... neither gives evidence of the spiritual gift of tongues that that some baptism of the Holy Spirit is evidenced by the spiritual gift of tongues. Therefore, we have every reason to read Acts 2 instead as a one-time miraculous episode where the Holy Spirit facilitates the apostles being able to witness the gospel to peoples present from other nations. So in other words, just as Jesus had done miraculous signs to aid his ministry in Luke's gospel, so now in Luke's Luke's book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is using miraculous signs to aid his ministry. So what then about the Pentecostal notion of a two-tiered Christianity? That there is kind of this basic level of Christianity with just Jesus or maybe with a little bit of the Spirit, but not all of him. But then the second tier, that after we get to the first tier, we can seek out this kind of more advanced level of Christianity and be be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is understood as as receiving all of the Holy Spirit. What about that? Well, let's step back and review for a moment what's happened here in these first two chapters of Acts. In chapter 1, before ascending into heaven, Jesus commissions his apostles. He gives them a task, right? What is it? To be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and ends of the earth. However, this is actually a task that they, the apostles, are completely powerless to accomplish without him. In fact, Jesus had told them as much in John 15. He'd said that apart from him, they would be unable to bear any fruit. So Jesus gives them this this task that they can't do without him, and then he leaves. So they they don't accomplish any of that mission in the ten days after he leaves. But then, when the Holy Spirit comes ten days later immediately the apostles begin bearing fruit in a very obvious, miraculous way, right? 3,000 people come to Jesus. What this demonstrates is what may seem to some like a very obvious truth. That this Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus. When the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles, this is no less than the Spirit of Jesus. And this is supported by what Jesus had said when he was preparing his disciples for all this back in John 14, our our gospel today. There in verse 16, he promises, you know, I'm going to ask the Father, he's going to give you a helper, he's going to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. But then look at verse 18. He's still talking about when he's going to sin. He says, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus, I, Jesus, will come to you, albeit spiritually. And In Romans 8, our second lesson, verses 9 and 11, affirm that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And this must be true, theologically, because while the Holy Spirit is a different person within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all still the same God with the same will. Therefore, one must conclude that making distinction between coming into spiritual relationship with Jesus, making distinction between that and coming and receiving the Holy Spirit is in opposition to the witness of Scripture. Furthermore, just from a logical standpoint, any suggestion that someone might receive only part of the Holy Spirit at first and then receive him full and full at a later time, right? That, that violates the logic of the Holy Spirit being a person, right? If I have a conversation with you, a person, I can't have a conversation with half of you. If I do, then we need to call somebody, right? I have a conversation with the whole of you, right? You don't get fractions of the Spirit, But what then about the relationship between receiving the Holy Spirit and baptism? Well, instead of affirming any notion that there are two baptisms, separate baptisms, Scripture seems to instead affirm the traditional position that everyone who enters into a spiritual relationship with Jesus and is baptized can be assured they have received the Holy Spirit. And one example in support of this is the baptism of none other than Christ Christ himself i've included an account of this from matthew 3 on your insert you'll notice that there at that at that episode the holy spirit descends on jesus like a dove and the father says from heaven this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased so here, Jesus has both his status as God's Son affirmed, something that's affirmed for us through forgiveness, right? That we are the adopted children of the living God. And in that same single event, Jesus has the Holy Spirit fall upon. So that's one example, is Jesus himself, who's a model for the discipleship he's called us to. But a second example comes in Acts chapter 2 in the sermon that follows the apostles speaking of these mighty works of God in the native languages of the Jewish pilgrims. There in, in, in 2.38, which is on, the, on your insert, Peter links repentance, baptism, and the reception of the Holy Spirit all together. 2.38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as Bruner says, the implication is that from that point forward, baptism is Pentecost. Baptism is Pentecost. Anyone who has trusted in Jesus and been baptized can be assured they've received the Holy Spirit. Now... I'm sure you're gathering here that I'm suggesting that the baptism of the Holy Spirit doctrine is unbiblical. But this does not mean, let me be clear, this does not mean that if you've had a supernatural experience that you've thought of as being the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if that's how you've referred to it, or that's how you've been taught to refer to it, I'm not saying those experiences weren't real or valid. I really want to suggest that we seek out categories other than the label, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to talk about those experiences or to teach others about what to expect for the Christian life. However, some may wonder, well, what's it really matter? I mean, what's it matter if a person wants to interpret their experience as a second baptism or or to call it that? I mean, well, words matter. Words matter. And in this instance, they especially matter. Let me explain why. First, any time a mindset is adopted that divides Christianity into two tiers, this is going to inevitably encourage the bad fruit of those who think themselves on the upper tier looking down upon others whom they believe are on the bottom tier oh, you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Tough break. If that's the outcome of Pentecost, then Pentecost hasn't reversed the division from Babel. It's made it worse. So for any of us who believe we possess one or more of the miraculous spiritual gifts, whether tongues or something else, well and good. Outstanding. But we must be careful not to interpret this as being indicative of any sort of spiritual achievement. Because such things are gifts from God, not something we have earned. They're gifts. That's what a gift is. You don't earn it. But the bad fruit, unfortunately, the bad fruit of the second baptism's doctrine doesn't stop there. You see if there are two tiers of Christianity and the first tier is entered into by faith in Christ, then a sec- the second tier is inevitably going to have to require something beyond faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And indeed, Bruner's research into theologians advocating for the baptism of the Holy Spirit bears this out across the board. As as to a person, they, they have to end up prescribing conditions in addition to faith that must be met in order to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. For example, some say that to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a person has to expect it or desire it. Right? Others have said that you, you must have others who've been filled, filled with the Spirit pray for you to receive it. Right? It's kind of like this contagion thing that's passed on. Others have said that that one must separate themselves from people who are especially sinful before they can receive it. There's a lot of language about reaching a state of complete obedience or of complete surrender or of totally emptying oneself in order to be able to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. In these traditions, people who are unable to demonstrate They've been baptized in the Spirit by the supposed evidence of tongues. They're they're frequently asked questions like, Have you obeyed God fully? Or have you yielded to Him at every point? I mean, what that, whatever that even means. So you see, the way it's often framed is that one can have faith toward Christ, which may or may not um, be total but one must have a faith then toward the Holy Spirit, which should or must approach total, total faith. It's this kind of new category of of faith in order to to be given the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So so really, Brunner kind of boils it down simply. Where where this teaching has to end up, just logically, is that there is faith and then there is faith. Okay? Okay? this higher level of total or ultimate faith. So the upshot of this teaching is that while one is saved by grace through faith alone, that's just level one Christianity that does that. But beyond that, there's a further tier that requires next level faith. With due respect, this is contrary to the gospel. This is, a different, this is different from the gospel put forth in Holy Scripture. Don't allow somebody to put that yoke on you. Bruner, I think, makes a really, really wise point. He, he says that in this way, the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and tongues as evidence, it, it bears the mark of the demands by some in the early church for circumcision, right? which was renounced at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 and later railed against by Paul. Right? Paul spoke against this requirement that Christians have to be circumcised, which again was the old covenant requirement for Jews, because it then requires fulfillment of conditions beyond mere faith in Christ. And for Paul, that's just disqualifying. It's inconsistent with God's heart and the gospel. But furthermore, Bruner observes that whenever the gospel has been supplemented, right? Unfortunately, what happens is that supplement tends to become the new center for people adhering to it. So rather, it's instead of Christ. So one could argue this was true not only for the circumcision party of the first century church, but for many who proclaim the baptism of the Holy Spirit today. That somehow creeps in to become central and primary, edging out Jesus. I'm getting there. I'm about done. So the notion of a two-tiered Christianity is unbiblical. However, there is a distinction put forth by Scripture in regard to the Holy Spirit. But it is not between those believers who have the full Holy Spirit and those who don't. Instead, the distinction put forth is really about a decision set before every believer all the time. The decision that Paul calls a decision between living in the Spirit, or living according to our sinful flesh. He talks about this in our second lesson from Romans 8 today. In that passage, Paul is taking for granted that all believers have the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 9, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So when that when that passage talks about being, or when any scripture talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, It's really referring to a day-by-day, hour-by-hour, and moment-by-moment opportunity that's before each one of us to to enter into or not, to to live with an awareness that Christ is with us, to to live in accordance with His truth and in reliance on His power for victory over sin and to live in love for our neighbor. That's what life in the Spirit is. It's an opportunity that's always there, and there's plenty of times where we completely neglect to take it. We go our own way. We We ignore Jesus. But it's not this one-time decision. It's a, a constant opportunity, invitation from the Lord to abide in Him. Verse 5 says for, of Romans, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. <clears throat> So for those of you hearing this today who who've never had any mystical experience, aren't aware of possess of, of possessing any supernatural spiritual gifts, the good news is there's nothing inferior about you. I mean, whether the Lord provides any individual with spiritual gifts or experiences, that is entirely His prerogative. And we'll dig more deeply into the place and purpose of spiritual gifts in our second part next week. But I'm sure there are many of us who have had passages on the Holy Spirit, such as Acts 2 and others, presented to us in ways that seem to demand that we prove how spiritual we are. That's spiritual abuse. Presenting the Holy Spirit to a believer as a curse, not a blessing. Something to live up to. The good news is that the life of Christian discipleship consists of just one single tier: following Christ or not. And every one of us are equally in need of his grace and his help to do that. To love God and our neighbor and to not make a complete mess out of things. And that is why he has imparted his Holy Spirit to us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.